Hello there, Geraldine Doog back with you with Extra and delighted to be so, though especially pleased, I might add, to be back after experiencing all the travel chaos of flying internationally, which you might have read about. And my thanks to Catherine Robinson for sitting so happily in my place. Well, now, it has been a very big week for Sri Lanka and our Sri Lankan community here in Australia because the country's crisis dramatically deepened with those extraordinary pictures of mob behaviour really offering a textbook example of national collapse, um, what usually characterises the complete breakdown of an existing order. What might come next in in order to restore the country's cohesion? That's the question. Theoretically, the president is in place, Ranil Wickramasinghe, who was elevated on Wednesday after his boss, President uh, Rajapaksa, fled the country. And that seemed to somewhat ameliorate the hundreds of thousands of protesters who left the presidential palace peacefully. Mr Wickramasinghe, late this week, ordered the military to do, quotes, whatever is necessary to restore order. How can some sort of stability be reinstated so that long-term loans can be negotiated? I'm pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Pakiasoti Saravanamutu. He's Executive Director uh, at the Centre for Policy Alternatives in Sri Lanka and he's guided us through the drama in earlier programs. Hello there. Thank you. What has this week been like for you? A pretty basic question and the people of Sri Lanka with those ex- that extraordinary sense of uh, something major just collapsing. Yeah. Yeah, it has been both frustrating and exciting. Frustrating because the key thing, the pivotal thing, was the letter of resignation from Gotabi Rajapaksa once he had fled the country. Now it has finally come and it has been announced. The Speaker has announced that President Gotabi Rajapaksa has resigned from office. So the constitutional processes can now be put into train. That is, that Parliament meets... It decides on the date on which the election of the new president will take place. Within 30 days, in the meantime, the prime minister will act as president. Within 30 days, parliament will elect one of their own to be the new president. Now, hopefully, once that happens, there will be a degree of political stability restored. Right. So, um, now I think this will be a surprise to listeners, to be candid. So, there is a process that is possible that could restore governance as we know it. Yes, of course. There is constitution. And the constitution, we waited upon the official resignation of the president. Once that happens, parliament takes over. And as I said, the prime minister becomes acting president. Within 30 days, parliament elects one of its own to take over as interim president to complete the unexpired years of Gotabe Rajpaksa's term. And who might that be? Who are the front runners? Well, there is the leader of the opposition. However, the majority in parliament is from the former president's party, the Sri Lanka Podjana Perumuna. Uh, there is a suggestion that they might support the existing prime minister. And then there is the possibility of the JVP, uh, leader, Anurakumara Desanayaka, also throwing his hat into the ring. And there is the possibility that, yes, that the Podujana Perumana, the SLPP, might put forward a candidate of their own as well. So, if you could again help us um, with those acronyms, yeah. are fairly forbidding. Uh, are these totally different um, belief systems? That st- you know, are, are these parties well, that uh, have a very strong, credible, sort of coherent sense of themselves? 
Well, the Sri Lanka Podujana Perumana, the SLPP, is the party of President Rajapaksa, right. and it's very much a pro-Rajapaksa nationalist party. The United National Party, one which the Prime Minister comes from, is the good old-fashioned uh, centre-right party in Sri Lankan politics. The JVP is the centre-left party. Uh, that's the Janata Vimukti Perumana, or People's uh, Power Party. Uh, so those are the three major parties. The candidates will, of course, try to um, demarcate themselves as being capable of strong and wise leadership. But let's see. Well, there will be an election. The, yeah. Well, you think there'll be an election, do you? Yeah, yeah. I think there will be an election rather than a unanimous decision with regard to one person. And you can't see a unity government being formed? No. So that person will then go on to form an all-party government. Oh, that person will go into formal. Okay. Now, how would the protesters respond, in your judgment, if the parliament supported the sitting prime minister, or I suppose he's now president? Well, that might, yeah. Well, that might well be incendiary as far as they're concerned, because they have asked for Gotabe to go, as well as for Radio Vikramasinghe to go on the grounds that he has been protecting the Rajapaksas. Um, so that might be problematic. So. Parliament will have to take that into account. But I guess the members of Parliament are also taking into account their own personal security. And they hope for a strong leader who will be able to maintain law and order. So Rani Vikramasinghe being supported, and he'll have to be supported by the Sri Lanka Podhijana Perumana, or the SLPP, because he doesn't have any seats in Parliament other than his own. Um, so that could be a question mark as to what could happen if Ranil Vikramasinghe was made the president and the protests on the Argale continue. Ordering the army in, which he's done, isn't that highly problematic, given the army's recent reputation with ending the civil war? I know it's a few years ago now, but, you know, it's, it, it, it wouldn't have seemed to me to be the type of institution you'd want to bring into this, but maybe you have to. Well, yeah, this is the point. I mean, he may have come to the conclusion that the police was inadequate to uh, deal with the law and order uh, situation. But giving the army the powers sort of carte blanche to do whatever is necessary, that is problematic because the army can shoot and they could kill someone and that could be bloodshed as a consequence. So the army needs to act with a lot of self-restraint. Is that likely? Are they well, well led? So, so far, so good. So far, so good. But it could get worse. Look, Reuters, Reuters had a significant story yesterday outlining this Aragalia movement, this multi-pronged yeah. protest campaign to which you've just referred, which began in March and has sort of been spectacularly successful, almost surprised itself with this huge march on the capital. Now, I mean... What do you know about them? Are there leaders there who can be drawn into this uh, challenge to get the place back on deck? Well, the Argale is not a homogenous whole. There are different factions. There are people who have uh, allegiance to political parties. There are citizens' movements, community groups, etc. But in the last couple of days, the Inter-University Students Federation and the Frontline Socialist Party seem to have taken the lead in terms of the political demands. And uh, they're the ones who I think the Prime Minister referred to fascist groups infiltrating the Aragale. They're the ones I think he was referring to. But there is no evidence that they are violent 
or that they want to sort of capture power by using the force of numbers or anything like that. So they, the Argale, as this broad movement, needs to decide as to who their spokesperson is going to be and uh, whether they are going to engage in electoral policies. Because once a new president is elected, the next step, I would imagine, is going to have to be the dissolution of parliament and a general election. So the Argale has to decide whether they're going to get involved in the active electoral politics or not. And, um, you know, I wonder about what it feels like on the streets at the moment, uh, be- how you pull back from the sights we've seen of, of a complete uh, breach of, of normal authority. Um, and I think a lot of listeners in Australia will be saying, well, how is it still operating in a country, as a country, given we're constantly told there's no money for gasoline, uh, long, long lines for food, even middle-class families are going without meals. I mean, there must still be money and food circulating. It just doesn't really quite... Yes, it's not is, easy to there understand. Is, <laughs> there is money uh, and food circulating. That's absolutely correct. There are still very long queues for the petrol stations that still provide petrol, and it's largely the Indian Oil Corporation, the IOC petrol stations that do provide petrol. So, you know, the people are caught up between the tension and excitement and frustration of what might happen politically. But their immediate focus, of course, is in terms of getting their basic essentials, getting their fuel, getting their food and all of that. Yeah. I mean, dare I ask you personally, um, your household is managed and your family's household, you know where to go to, to make sure that you do have enough food and fuel? Yes, we go to the usual supermarkets and uh, stations. At the present moment, for example, my vehicle has been in a queue to get fuel now for the last one and a half days. <laughs> What's someone sitting in the car waiting? Yeah. <sighs> and when do you imagine you will get fuel? Well, hopefully in the course of today. Are the merchants operating these outlets, do they have their own links with um, suppliers, do they? Yes. So they have their links, their normal links with suppliers who send them the petrol and diesel and whatever in bowsers. So when those bowsers come, they are put into the pumps and then the queue starts moving. Now, the central bank governor uh, has said that he's desperate, virtually he said this, he's desperate for stability and perceived stability so that he can start to negotiate loans with people like the IMF and, you know, probably, you told us before, probably the Indians and the Chinese. Now, is, is that underway or is that just stalled completely with these quite extraordinary pictures we've seen coming out of your country? Well, at the moment it has stalled. The prime minister is the finance minister, or the acting president at the moment is the finance minister. But the talks have stalled because we need political stability. So hopefully, within a week, we will have a new president and a new government. And then the talks can proceed, because when that happens, there will be a restoration of political stability. I think the people in the Aragalea, too, uh, will sort of accept that, look, you know, once there is a new government, that new government has a particular task to engage in, and they may well give that new government a period of six months or whatever it is to uh, get its act together and uh, put us back on the road to political stability. Uh, final question. Do you honestly imagine things will get worse before they get better? 
Well, the economic conditions with regard to the IMF agreement, we don't know exactly what they are, but we could imagine that they would be fairly tough. In addition, we need the bridging finance before that IMF money can come in, which might take another nine months or so. So we need that bridging finance to continue to get fuel. And without fuel and gas, of course, the hardships on the people mount. You do show an amazing song fra, Dr. Saravana Mutu. I cannot imagine Australians behaving or fi- responding just quite as you have. We have to make do with the situation that we have and try to get out of it. But no, it is pretty desperate for the vast majority of people who are skipping meals, who've had problems with the hospitals in terms of drugs, who cannot move because they don't have fuel. So, I mean, it is pretty desperate, but we have to grit our teeth and get through this. Thank you for uh, outlining all that. I'm sure we'll talk again. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Dr. Saravana Mutu uh, from the Centre for Policy Alternatives in Sri Lanka. Now, you'll know what this is that's about to hit your ears, but I think you may be surprised at the interpretation you're about to hear. Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind, of course. The book of the film came out in 1936 and became an overnight success. The MGM film, which which smashed all records on its release three years later, uh, went on to win 10 Academy Awards. And to this day, it often appears on lists of best of films. But what was the film really all about? Can it tell us things about America today that transcend the usual analyses? Well, yes, it can tell us a lot according to our next guest. And it's a pretty scathing takedown that she makes of a work which she says is a justification for slavery and white supremacy and one which haunts American culture today. Sarah Churchill is professorial fellow in American literature. She's also chair of public understanding of the humanities at the University of London. And her book is called The Wrath to Come, Gone with the Wind and the Lies America Tells. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. That's quite a subtitle, The Lies America Tells. You've looked at other myths in American life, um, F. Scott Fitzgerald and Marilyn Monroe. I wonder what triggered you to look so closely at Gone with the Wind? Well, I mean, I grew up with Gone with the Wind, right? So it's part of my kind of imaginative inheritance. I was obsessed with the film as a young girl. I loved the novel, thought it was so romantic, and I completely identified with Scarlett O'Hara, its central character. It's this very strong-willed uh, um, woman who's determined to, you know, get what she wants out of life no matter what <laughs> what gets in her way. And um, and so uh, it's always been in my head. And then when, um, in the way Trump selection, when... When overt racism started to, you know, really make itself so noticeable, even white Americans like me could miss it um, in the United States. And I'm thinking particularly of of the um, far right rally in Charlottesville in 2017. Neo-Nazis were shouting literally blood and soil. um, um, And there were people shouting Jews will not replace us as they fought to keep up the statue of the Confederate General Robert E. Lee. Um, And this controversy blew up around taking down the Confederate statues. And 
and then, you know, it went on for the next several years. And of course, in 2020, there was the, the terrible murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protests that followed. And it just became really clear to me that if you wanted to understand all of this mess and all of this anger and violence and controversy, all of the complexities of American history, but also, as my subtitle says, the lies we tell about our history and how the conflict between the facts and the lies is really what's erupted in violence. It seems to me that although Gone with the Wind is a long book and a long movie, it's still a relatively efficient and compact way of coming at this huge complex of, of historical issues. Okay, and I will try to tease some of them out because, I mean, they're, they're big claims. Let's set the scene a little bit around Gone with the Wind. It came out first as a novel, which I have to say I absolutely adored as a teenager and, and can remember it, my mother calling me to dinner and I wouldn't put it down. <laughs> um, what sort of world did the author Margaret Mitchell come from? So Margaret Mitchell was born in 1900 and she died in 1949. And she, her grandmother um, had been born on a, a slave plantation. Her grandmother uh, was the daughter of a rich Irish immigrant. In fact, her grandmother was the model for Scarlett O'Hara. And so she had grown up uh, wealthy and pampered. Uh, uh, enslaving people, and she was part of the society that went to war to to defend and maintain their right to enslave other humans and to keep them in bondage. And and so Margaret Mitchell grew up with a grandmother telling her that that was you know that that was right and justifying it, rationalizing it, and romanticizing it, telling her how beautiful the old South had been and how the Yankees ruined everything when. And in this telling, they kind of spitefully and aggressively came down into the South to ruin everything. Um, and so, and, and the point is, that- can I interrupt you? What the point yes, you please. make is that she and her class saw themselves as the victims. So whereas the rest of the world may have decided it was actually the black Americans who were the victims, they saw themselves, and I think your thesis is they still do see themselves as Absolutely. the victims of that. When white victimhood um, was invented in America... Gone with the Wind captures the telling of that story, which began with the aftermath of the Civil War and the justification of slavers, uh, enslavers like Margaret Mitchell's grandparents. And so they, the white Southerners began to tell this story about, um, about how, as you say, how they were the victims of all of this. They were the ones who had their property stolen, their way of life ruined, and they would do everything that they could to reclaim it and rebuild it and always saw it as their right. They, You'll remember this because you love the novel. Scarlett O'Hara never questions her right to any of this. She never questions her right to have Tara. And that's really what drives the story. And yes, and I'm saying that that sense of white entitlement is still very much present in American politics today. Let's go back a bit to the end of the Civil War, and you're very good in the way you sort of say, let's have um, uh, dates, you know, that help people, that that ground people. So it's 1861 to 1865. After the war ended, it was the beginning of what is known as the lost cause, which you introduced me to. I have to say, I'd never heard that phrase. What exactly is this? Yeah. So the Lost Cause is quite famous in the United States, but I'm not surprised that you haven't heard of it. And um, But it, it really dominated 20th century interpretations of how white people across the country in the North and the South thought about the war. And the, the so the Lost Cause was was an apology for slavery. It was this worldview that I just described, that the, that the, that the South, uh, during slavery, the antebellum South was a gentle, peaceful place where, um, and it, 
It said that slavery was a benevolent institution that was welcomed by the enslaved who were better off under the protection of white people than they would have been under freedom. And it got this name, the Lost Causes, as a nostalgic justification after the war was lost of saying, well, we may have lost, but, you know, we gave it our all. And so it, it was a massive project in face saving. And this is really, really important because the country had to come back together after the Civil War. So there had to be a way for the white South to not just politically be readmitted, but psychologically be readmitted. And that mattered for the white North as well. So there had to be a story in which everybody was okay, in which you couldn't say, well, actually, you're really morally in the wrong here, but you're also going to be part of the country. So there was a huge debate, just to give one example, about whether white Southerners who had led a treasonous uh, insurrection against the United States, um, should they be allowed to vote in future elections? Should they be allowed to hold office in future elections? Well, this is a question that's being asked very actively in the United States right now for a reason, because it's a good question. You just led a treasonous war against this government. Should you be part of this government? And so those questions were really, really complex. And what happened was this myth of the lost cause grew up to make everybody feel okay about it and to say, well, actually, it wasn't really that bad, was it? it there was just this unfortunate outbreak of violence, but let's all move along. And there were no bad guys here. And we can all come back together and rebuild on this, um, this pretense that we are now a full democracy when, in fact, the country was anything but. And your thesis is that this is when this sort of Southern exceptionalism spread, which played into older American exceptionalism myths, which I think, you know, we all sort of see as very... Um, and you've got this interesting phrase, which regard America as perennially innocent, as if exempt from history. Now, that's very interesting. What are you getting at there? Well, I mean that as if, as if history has no consequences, as if you can always be innocent no matter what you do, and as if you can just keep moving on and say, oh, well, you know, we, well, we meant well, so, you know, this is going to be fine. And, and America is not always innocent. And, and I say that as an American who loves my country, but that doesn't mean that it hasn't done terrible things both within its borders and without. And many other nations have had reckonings with their own terrible past. And the United States keeps refusing to do that in any kind of concerted way. And this was at this is one of the most extreme examples, but it's the one we think about the least, which is the, the idea that America is so innocent that even our version of slavery was good, is what this story actually says. Is that, it says and that, that's that, like that Mammy, Mammy being the classic example, Hattie McDaniel, exactly. who, who, that, who that won she, the Oscar. Chose, exactly. Mm. But who wasn't Sorry, allowed to actually... She, Selznick, David Selznick, the producer, had to pull strings to get her in. To, she wasn't... It, because segregation applied at the time. Exactly, right? So this is the perfect example of the hypocrisy and, and the, 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 the lies embedded in it. So this is a society saying slavery has enacted no consequences on our society whatsoever. Everything's great and hunky-dory, except, oh, yes, there is racial segregation and Hattie McDaniel can't sit at the same table with the white cast while she becomes the first African-American to win an Oscar. Mm -hmm. So the black cast is being you know, forced through the indignity of pretending that there's nothing wrong and that everything was fine, even as they're living with the consequences of the story pretending that everything's fine, you know? Now, and so it's really let, let, me, let me just ask you this, though, because I, I'm really quite foggy about the specifics. Do you think the North, the victorious North, did they make any mistakes here? Because you had this extraordinary aftermath um, of the war with, with all sorts of rights being given to people who'd been slaves. And while we may say now that was obviously fair and just, but did, was, it, was it too much too fast? It's a very difficult question, but did it start to, did it stir this exceptionalism? 
Well, I don't think it exactly stirred the exceptionalism, but it, it certainly proved to be too much too fast. Now, I tend to look at it the other way around, which is to be proud of, of the United States for trying something so audacious as to go from a society based on race-based slavery to full multiracial democracy in the space of a few years. And I, when I say a few years, I mean like three years. And that's mm-hmm. extraordinary, right? Um, but, you're, but you're right, it didn't work. So the North absolutely has a huge part to play in this. So what happened basically was that the... Um, uh, for all kinds of reasons, but the most important of which is the assassination of Abraham Lincoln in 1865. Um, he was succeeded by a white supremacist Southerner president, Andrew Johnson, the first president to be impeached. And that changed the course of everything because Johnson uh, pardoned the entire white South and gave all of the land back to white slave to white enslavers and basically allowed them to rebuild all of the foundations of the racial hierarchy of slavery. So it was basically slavery in all but name. And that was what created the possibility for Jim Crow. They denied black people the franchise. They locked them up in mass numbers. Mass incarceration starts at that point. Um, There are any number of of atrocities. There's an enormous amount of violence. The first Ku Klux Klan contested elections. The Klan, of course, was formed in 1865, wasn't it? The end of 1865. Exactly. So the first Ku Klux Klan was formed precisely to deny black people the franchise, explicitly and overtly to stop them from voting, which is something that um, not enough people uh, recognize. And then what How happened was the that? white... It, it weren't the central government, couldn't... What, yeah. Didn't they have a central government that would stop that? They did. And so that's what happened was the, the first Ku Klux Klan was wiped out by the federal government in 1871. And it's a complex story, but it's a really important one. And that was under the um, presidency of, of Ulysses S. Grant, um, who was an abolitionist and did believe in uh, in multiracial democracy. But the problem was that the, the, the power, to put it briefly, the power structures of the white South were, to your point about going too fast, too soon, they were too entrenched. And it without another civil war, basically it wasn't going to go away so these battles kept breaking out by proxy and eventually what ha- with with white supremacist groups like the clan there was huge violence in the streets so they wipe out the clan as an organization they couldn't wipe out white supremacism because that's what everybody in the south believed and a lot of well, people in the of north course, Ashley, you know Ashley from gone with the wind Ashley was a was a, I think a leader of the clan and Rhett, Rhett um, yeah. sympathized but didn't join he didn't join the clan, but he's in prison when Scarlett visits him in her phase, fa- famous green curtain dress in a Yankee prison. He's in prison for lynching a black man. Not oh, He's not a prisoner of war. He's there for lynching a black man. So he's a white supremacist. He's just too much of an individualist to join the clan. And he's a really good example of why they couldn't wipe it out. They could wipe out the clan, but they couldn't wipe out men like Rhett Butler who were walking around lynching black men across the South. And that's what was happening. So eventually what happened was there was a, there, there was a contested election in 1876 and, and very, very long and complex story short, the North made a compromise and they withdrew the federal troops from the South in order to get a Republican president, Rutherford B. Hayes, installed. And at that point, black people still, rightly in my view, see this as a huge betrayal by the North. And basically the North withdrew and left black Americans in the South to their own devices and left the white South to create the local laws that would let them, that became Jim Crow and would let them reinstate white supremacism. And the well, North they just basically made legal infringement. They, they re-legalized, didn't they? All sorts of bylaws were used. I mean, I've seen this, a very good doc- documentary on this. And they basically, um, by using the law, they got black people back into chains. 
Precisely. They did one way and another, right? Mm-hmm. Through mass incarceration, through chain gangs. They had, there was a, there was a system of debt peonage where you could, you could, you could, a black man could be imprisoned for, you know, dicing, right? So he's, you know, gambling on the streets. You lock him up for 30 bucks and he doesn't have the 30 bucks to free himself. But a farmer could go pay the $30 and release him into indentured servitude until he had worked off the $30. But nobody agreed how long, how many hours he had to work to work off the $30. So he's picking cotton so, again. Yeah, he's picking cotton again for the same guy, for the same man. That's the point. My guest on Saturday Extra is Sarah Churchwell, and she's written this really quite uh, fascinating book called The Wrath to Come, Gone with the Wind and the Lies America Tells. It is an extraordinary, well, this is your thesis. How, how have people reacted? How have Americans reacted to this, by the way? <laughs> well, it's, it's not out in America yet. So oh. It's only just been released in the UK and only just been released. So it's just coming out. So um, we shall see. I had a very nice interview with, a, with an African-American in um, uh, for CNN who was the first um, African-American who's read it since it was published. So I was, of course, very interested in his um, reaction to it. And I'm happy to say that he liked it, but we'll see what, we'll see what other people think. Mm. Well, I mean, how do you call this Confederate propaganda? I mean, it, there's some amazing things that you do. Um, uh, you know, it's very confronting. You say, for instance, one of the things, just to give listeners the sense, um, that you think just people uh, haven't grasped how much they've been influenced by this book and, 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 you know, other related myths, and they might choose to go to a reconstituted old plantation to have their wedding you know, this is all supposed to be gorgeous and fun. And you, you say, look, it's sort of like saying, I want to have be married in Dachau, you know. Exactly. <laughs> like tra- I mean, it's it like saying that. So it's, a, it's a romantic it's, it's sort of, So you, you, you believe it's really populated the imag- imagination of Americans in ways they don't grasp? Is that it? Yes, that's absolutely it. And I think that because, again, back to that point about innocence, it's enabled us to think that it wasn't really that bad. And so to think, well, you know, we know they were enslaved, but let's not think about that. And let's just, you know, and that was too bad, but that's over. And we can go, we can cherry pick our history and go enjoy the pretty romantic parts and dress up like enslavers, but not, but not actually stop and think about the fact that we are cosplaying as enslavers at our wedding. And that that's actually what you're doing. So it is like wearing a Nazi uniform at your wedding. That is what it is like because it was a system built on, you know, uh, uh, um, you know, human, I mean, it's human bondage. I mean, we all know what slavery is. I don't have to explain that, right? No. So, but it's, and, it's and, and so are you saying that talk about it? That in effect, this uh, attitude, set of underlying attitudes went right through to Martin Luther King and the civil rights time, that they were only sort of really pegged back then. Is that what you're really saying, is it? Absolutely. And it's only a couple of generations away. I mean, one of the stories I tell in the book is that the night before the premiere of Gone with the Wind in Atlanta in 1939, which you mentioned, um, they had a gala ball for all of white Atlanta. Black Atlanta, of course, was not invited. It was a segregated city. And the performance um, that one of the performances was of a, of a church choir of boys, um, boys from the local church choir, uh, little African-American boys, and they dressed them as slaves and had them sing for the pleasure of the white crowd. And one of the boys in that choir was 10-year-old Martin Luther King Jr., 
Truly, it, is that it, right? It, yes, uh-huh. It was a direct line. Hattie McDaniel was the daughter of enslaved people. So it was a direct line only a couple of generations away. And that's partly what I'm trying to remind people of. Donald Trump was born six years after Gone with the Wind started making its way across the country. This history is very much alive in the minds of all of these people. And some people might remember that when Parasite a couple of years ago became the first South Korean film and the first foreign language film to win Best Picture, Donald Trump said, why don't we have movies like Gone with the Wind anymore? It's in his imaginative inheritance too. So this is this is absolutely the through line is that is and, and politicians will talk about it today. I mean that we have um, legislatures, uh, local legislatures across the United States who are going back to not wanting to teach about slavery. They're calling it enforced immigration. And they're no, calling they're it not, servitude. Are they? Is that true? they are. They are right now. Absolutely. I will send you and your listeners the, the, the journalism about this. It is happening right now. And they are saying, well, we don't want to teach about slavery because that will upset our children and make them feel guilty. And that's what I mean about the perennially innocent. They say, well, we don't want to teach them about racism because why should they feel guilty for what other people did? And slavery is long over. And anyway, it's kind of in bad taste to bring up. And, you know, we know it happened, but why are you dwelling on the past? And all of these ways of trying to deny that there is anything there that we need to have a reckoning with. And and in my view, the violence that we're facing right now is that is part of that deferred reckoning. Yeah, and of course, the Confederate flag was used, as you point out, in the January the 6th insurgency uh, in the Capitol, which is incredible. Exactly. And that's the moment I opened my book with. It's totally symbolic of, of the whole story I'm telling. Look, I mean, finally, so what does one do with this book? Never give it to, you know, my grandchildren coming up or, <laughs> you know, talk about it like this and obviously read your book as well. I mean, it, it was <laughs> the love story got to me, I think, as much as anything yeah. else. And she is extraordinary. It is Irish part of, you know, I know that that Irish connection to land and everything. is so I sort of, oh, well, it, it's a pity to lose it. Well, I think so too. Look, I'm, I'm a professor of literature. I'm not in the business of getting rid of books or, or banning them. I, I, I think that everybody should read more. But look, we have a lot of problematic stories from, you know, old cultures that we still read and we just contextualize them for our children and our students. And we explain, you know, Shylock mm. is an anti-Semitic character. That doesn't mean that we don't perform The Merchant of Venice. Um, the problems of, of racial depiction in Othello, we still, we, but we deal with it. We talk about it. We ask questions about it. And we recognize the power of the play. Now, I'm not putting Gone with the Wind in the same caliber with um, Shakespeare, to be clear. I loved it too, but not that much. Um, but I'm not saying we get rid of it, and I'm not saying we can't like the things about it we like. I still like Scarlett O'Hara. And actually, on rereading Gone with the Wind, I'll say that one of the one of its um, qualities that it gets overlooked is how funny it is. Margaret Mitchell had a really acidic sense of humor, and she's, she's, she's quite sharp about a lot of aspects of her society. It's just that she has these massive racist blinders. And what I'm saying is that we can't compartmentalize that. We can't just say, oh, it's racist, but and then mm. read it. Because what I'm saying is the racism is intertwined in all of it. So I think at a minimum, we have to say it's racist and, and we have to, we have to own that and think about it and think about how it relates to everything else that's in the story. And we can admire the white feminism of the story, but not without recognizing the way that it's purchased at the cost of black equality. And we have to think about those two things together, it seems to me. Oh, Sarah, thank you so much. I have mo enjoyed that immensely. Thank you for speaking to us. Likewise. Thank you so much. Sarah Churchwell.
from uh, the University of London. Her book is called The Wrath to Come, Gone with the Wind and the Lies America Tells. It's published by Head of Zeus Press. One of our listeners said Margaret Mitchell was 10 before she actually learned that the South had lost. <laughs> that doesn't leave you thinking. Well, up next, uh, setting up consular help for Australians overseas. Yes, given our appetite for travel, adventure and work overseas, staff at Australia's embassies and consulates are a vital connection for those who've been robbed or injured or hospitalised or worse, arrested, detained, kidnapped. We could go on. Ian Kemish was head of Australia's consular services from 2000 and he's written a personal account, he's a diplomat by training, that takes us to the consular front line of some of the most difficult events faced by Australians overseas, like the Bali bombings. Ian's book is called The Consul and it provides a recent history and rare insight into the events and the challenges and I might add the expertise of the people he's worked with, whose job it is to support us when crises happen. Ian, welcome to Saturday Extra. Just great to be with you, Geraldine. Ian, having just returned from overseas, I can attest to the chaos and the dramas and the delays of international travel right now. People think it's bad here. It's nothing like over there. I can imagine there'll be some Australians in trouble, frankly, turning up at our embassies, expecting help from the consular services when things go wrong. Does this sound familiar to you? It absolutely does. Uh, Like you, I've just returned from an international trip, but there was a lot of disruption along the way, a lot of rearranging along the way. And in a small way, uh, our own experience reflects a broader pattern for Australian international travel right now. There's this extraordinary pent-up demand that's being released for travel at the moment. I've been talking to former colleagues in DFAT recently and you know, you look back just to April this year and we had 300,000 Australians departing on holiday, family uh, trips for work commitments, well in excess of that number of seats on flights departing the country were sold in June. And we're seeing record numbers, all-time record numbers of passport applications at the moment. So, Mm. We haven't quite reached the numbers pre-pandemic. I mean, back in 2019, 11 million Australians left the country on trips that year. It's less than half that rate at the moment. But that number, less than half the the, the number who were travelling in 2019, is generating about 15% more work for consular support and services. Look, I, I think perhaps... COVID illness, especially in countries where the hospital systems don't compare with Australia's, leads Australians to turn to the service for help. The isolation requirements and the disruption associated with COVID. Expectations have increased, I think, um, but there are also, sadly and importantly, mental health issues. You know, the Australian Institute of Health and Wellbeing back here says that in Australia itself, we're seeing about a 20% increase in the number of people who are turning to Beyond Blue for help. This applies in the the cohort of people who are travelling abroad as well. And there's nothing to prevent, and nor should there be, those who are dealing with mental illness from travelling. And in some cases, if they're off their medication, they can find themselves in quite serious trouble and turning to our embassies abroad. And what a complex sort of challenge, for which I don't suppose there's much rehearsal or training, really. Oh, look, I think the consular staff staff are provided with training. They're they're not expert, but they are provided with uh, some support 
for dealing with those sorts of situations. And don't get me wrong, I think and I certainly hope that people who are managing mental health issues generally have a very positive experience of travel. But these things happen. Okay, no one's written, I don't think, this before from the sort of this more diplomats regard as the more prosaic end of their lives, but you make it quite plain that that's not the case. Like prior to the pandemic, one third of travellers were ignoring official warnings to take out travel insurance. Now, I assume that has increased post-pandemic, but I wonder if you can tell me if that's the case. I've read recently that um, about one in six Australians are still not taking out travel insurance for international travel. I mean, at that the is absolutely lunacy. <laughs> yeah. And if that's the case, it's better than it once was, but it's certainly good enough. It is lunacy. People tend to think about uh, travel insurance in terms of covering flight cancellations or accommodation cancellations or um, lost luggage. But to be honest, those are the least important reasons to take out travel insurance. The cost of illness, hospitalisation and, in worst-case scenarios, death overseas can be disastrous, devastating. I've certainly known back in my time running the service of elderly parents who've had to remortgage their own homes in order to ensure that their loved ones, their children, were looked after abroad and repatriated. Now, it can be a shock to people sometimes that the Australian government can't simply step in and cover all of this. But of course, that's what travel insurance is for. No one's going to be left to die if the Australian government knows about it, um, and they will step in. But any financial outlay really does need, in any reasonable world, to be you know, in the form of a loan and subject to repayment by the family concerned. Would you prefer then that before people were allowed to leave the country, this sounds very punitive, I know, but should there be an, you know, a mandatory requirement, a bit like third party car insurance, that you just have to have some? I don't think I'd call for that. I think that would be a, a pretty big call, but I think that the encouragement has to be really strong. Um, governments over time have sought to limit the amount of consular assistance they will provide to people who have not taken out travel insurance. This is tricky. Is a tricky area. When people find themselves in serious difficulty, no one wants to turn their back. Mm. And putting limits on Australian outbound travel, well, we've had that, haven't we, <laughs> in recent times and mm. uh, in a quite unusual way and I certainly wouldn't be calling for it. Maybe you could take us to the front line of the consular branch of DFAT, which is the proper term. Maybe it is useful to spell out exactly what a consular service does. So we have at headquarters in Canberra a division of people who coordinate, guide and support the work of Australian consuls assigned to our embassies overseas. So each of our embassies or high commissions have officers who do this work, who step forward when Australians encounter very serious trouble abroad. And I must say, there are many people who are surprised by consular work. People like me who joined the Department of Foreign Affairs with very, very different ideas in mind, with uh, ideas about engaging with exotic cultures, um, uh, accompanying senior leaders, negotiating treaties, all that stuff. I actually did all that in my career, but the bit that surprised me was this consular work. 
Well, expectation management is obviously critical here. There's a, there's a funny, I think, part of your book where you talk about expectation management, which is perceived to be a problem around the world with um, governments managing uh, citizens' expectations. And, uh, for instance, um, Egypt blew up, you know, with uh, Tahrir Square and so on and the Arab Spring. And also Libya. Libya fell apart. And the government ended up, our government ended up, I think under Prime Minister Rudd, sponsoring charter flights to evacuate Australians from Cairo and also funded evacuation voyages from Syria. Some of those on the Qantas charter flight out of Cairo asked whether they'd be awarded frequent flyer points. That's right. And in the 2006, I think it was, um, evacuation from Lebanon, we had a few people who, having experienced the sea voyage to Cyprus and then were being organised onto Qantas charter flights, onward flights, explained carefully to the consular officials that they were speaking to that they actually only flew business class. You know, it, there's, <laughs> oh, isn't it? there is a little bit of that. But look, let, let me be really clear here. We're talking about a very small minority of Australians. Australian travellers are reasonable, independent, well-resourced, thoughtful people. Um, it is hard sometimes, though, when you're doing this work to remember that because the people you're confronted with are often the exception to that rule. And that's what we're talking about here. And a bit desperate, no doubt, and frightened. Yeah, abso absolutely. And for some of them, in all seriousness, the moment they encounter a consul is the very worst moment of their lives. Sure. And, and so just to make it clear, by and large... If one needs the help of the Australian government via the consular, consular assistance, do you have to pay for whatever comes after that? I mean, what, what is the understanding? I mean, you know, if the government puts on a, a charter flight, is that at the government's cost or do you have to contribute or what? The principle of, of cost recovery is applied whenever possible. The truth is that sometimes it's not possible. In some cases, the government can simply decide that it's often stated principle of cost recovery will not apply. I had a particular experience of it with a very significant evacuation of Australians from Solomon Islands. The initial view was that the Australians who were evacuated amidst quite serious civil unrest um, were often people who had not taken the opportunity to leave under their own steam previously. And even though they were being evacuated by the Australian Defence Force in a naval vessel, that they should in some way contribute to that cost. The Australian public and the Australian media reacted uh, very strongly to this notion and the government of the day backed away from it. And I think this brings in an important point. The understanding around these issues um, between the Australian public and government has no legal form. There are guidelines, there are policies, there are no legal rights in particular. And the way this work is done is in the end, an expression of what we as a nation think is reasonable. It is a situation where you have the government responding to public expectation. So there is an element of shifting sand in this. Where do you think it should end up? Yeah, what is your prediction then about the general approach of the consular service? I think it needs to settle a little. I think that we have, are at a peak moment in terms of the level of servicing that does take place. I don't think it's quite the moment to have that conversation, though, because right now the world is a complicated place. We have seen some serious challenges for Australians abroad over the course of the last few years. The COVID era in particular was a very difficult period. We had Australians 
stranded abroad as a result of government decision back home. You had the consular service squeezed in the middle trying to do what it could to help people, evacuate people back to Australia and so on. We've also seen the evacuation from Afghanistan. We've seen the the war in Ukraine, which has had an impact on many Australians. I think that there needs to come a time, though, that we recommence the, the national conversation about what Australians need to do for themselves. And that point we were talking about before, travel insurance, is central to it. Mm. In fact, you and your family have been the recipients of consular services. It's not, this is not just a remote thought. Could you tell us about your friend and brother-in-law with whom you began your career? Yeah, sure. So Roger Strickland was a boy from rural Western Australia who joined <coughs> the Australian Foreign Service with me. Uh, he was my best mate. He was this endearing, very good-looking, former ABC journalist, by the way, uh, guy who charmed everybody he met and was by far the most popular member of my intake. We were all in our, in our mid-twenties at the time. I introduced him slightly unwittingly to my uh, sister-in-law. Um, there'd been a bit of d- a discussion between my wife and my sister-in-law about how much she'd like Roger and my sister-in-law being who she was. When she met Roger for the very first time down in Melbourne at a, at, a, at a bar, said to him, hello, I hear we're getting married. And they did. And, you know, Roger and Chrissy went on a posting to Vanuatu. Roger was killed in, a, in an air crash. Mm. He shouldn't have been on the plane concerned. He it was mm. a, a light, light plane uh, in Vanuatu on a Spirito Santo. And, you know, we were on posting in Brunei. His now widow, Chrissy was um, in Vila, of course. And the family, particularly uh, Roger's parents and his wife, had to be stepped through in our company. The very difficult process associated with, you know, identification of the corpse and and repatriation of remains. So it was an experience that we had well before I took on the consular work. But it had a bit of an impact on me. It introduced me to our consular colleagues and helped me understand, I think, uh, the importance of human empathy and and care. Mm. Yes, Roger was one of DFAT's own, but I'm very, very confident, based on decades of experience, that the um, approach just doesn't differ. No, and, and it's obviously it did make a powerful impact on you just about the care that can be shown in extremists. Mm-hmm. Now, you do oh. write, Ian, that one of the fundamental rules of the consular world was turned on its head in the aftermath of the September 11 attacks. In fact, you then go on to talk about the reality of, of this, in a sense, when the Bali bombings occurred in 2002. And it's it quite powerful in the way you write about what happened behind the scenes to respond suddenly, so suddenly, rung at 2.30 in the morning for, by the um, ambassador to the Indonesia, waking you and your wife up in Australia. The carnage, the death, the grief on the ground. When you reflect on that, what are your prime memories? It was such a sad and awful time uh, for the people who were directly impacted. And our first thought needs to be for the families of the victims of that atrocity. The 20th anniversary is approaching, by the way, and it will be very much in the hearts and minds of a lot of people who lost somebody in Bali. Uh, For those of us in the consular service, it was a difficult period, but I also look back with some pride when I think about how 
a group of Australian men and women, including particularly from the Consular Service, but also from the Australian Federal Police, from the Defence Force, responded to that situation. It was unprecedented. It was not only a crisis taking place in another country, it was a national crisis. Not only did we lose 89 of the of the dead, you know, many more Indonesians and, and there were others, but also Australia was the country that had the capacity to conduct a very swift and efficient aeromedical evacuation. My role was to coordinate all that, working with, with others, and people really stepped forward. Not just Australian officials, by the way. The volunteers who just turned up at the consulate in Bali to help were extraordinary. What people who were living there, they were expats or they were travellers, they just turned up. Exactly. Uh, doctors who happened to be visiting, nurses who happened to, to live there, uh, others who just wanted to be helpful. It really was an extraordinary response. And we found ourselves evacuating back to Australia, all the, the, the serious victims of those bombings. So we not only evacuated Australians, we evacuated everybody. We evacuated Indonesians from Indonesia. And I say it was a national crisis. Our hospitals, first Darwin Base Hospital and then Perth and Brisbane and so on, found themselves dealing with an unprecedented number of burns victims. We also, by the way, had people walking into casualty wards in Australia having flown out on charter flights back to Australia. It was quite the time. It was quite the time. Look, I can't let you go without putting your PNG hat on. You were the High Commissioner to Papua New Guinea from 2010 and you lived there as a child and uh, you wrote in the book that the posting was half-jokingly referred to as a kind of punishment. Now, we're just seeing, we just heard about death of a young woman by a, a bullet. It's still a bit difficult to discern exactly what's happened there. But obviously, this election is proving to be a complicated issue. Um, what would you like to see change about the way we engage with PNG? I'd like to see the Australian public participating more in this relationship. Australians tend to forget that Papua New Guinea's there. This is a place where the mainland is 3.6 kilometres from the nearest Queensland island. So what would be great to see is a little bit more public participation in the relationship with Papua New Guinea uh, through people-to-people -people links, cultural links, for sporting links. There's plenty of opportunity and I just wish that Australians knew a little bit more about it. Well, Ian Kemish, congratulations on getting this all down and making it readable. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Geraldine. It's been great. And Ian Kemish, K-E-M-I-S-H, is the author of The Consul, an insider's account from Australia's diplomatic frontline. It's being launched at the Lowy Centre in Sydney on Thursday. And that's it for Extra with me, Geraldine Doog. Thank you for your company today. And I do hope you can join us again next week. Bye-bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.